Well, kia ora everyone. Thanks, Pipfang, for reading that for us. Uh, I'm really excited to get into Psalm 90 with you all. Uh, my name's Dave. Awesome that you're here today. And can I just add my welcome, uh, especially if you're new or newish, uh, it's great to have you with us. Um, let's pray together as we jump into this awesome little psalm. Father, we give you great thanks that you are not silent, that you speak to us. And you've done that just now as we've read your word, the Bible. Uh, now as we dig deep into it, uh, would you reveal yourself to us uh, and would you help us to see clearly your son Jesus, in his name we pray, amen. I can't get no satisfaction. Uh, it's, uh, it's 1965 and the Rolling Stones released what's going to go on to become a massive hit. I can't get no satisfaction. Now, the thing about this song, it's a musical rant. It's this, this blistering attack on the total inability of this world to provide purpose, to provide joy, to provide satisfaction. Listen to these words uh, from one of the verses. When I'm driving in my car, when a man come on the radio, he's telling me more and more about some useless information supposed to fire my imagination. I can't get no satisfaction. You see, on every radio station, on every TV screen, on every billboard, promises are being made, empty promises. This will give you purpose, joy, satisfaction. Now, the Rolling Stones, they're undoubtedly one of the greatest bands that this world has ever seen. Uh, I can't get no satisfaction. It's second on a list of 500 songs, uh, the, uh, the greatest 500 songs of all time. Uh, it topped the charts in no less than 13 countries. Dozens of artists have since put their own stamp on this song. Uh, they have scaled, the Rolling Stones, they've scaled the mountain, haven't they? And even then, they can't get no satisfaction. You see, and what the Rolling Stones are grappling with is, is what Psalm 90 tackles head on. In the struggle, in the brokenness of life, where can I get satisfaction? So let's have a look at what we have in front of us. Psalm 90, read with me. Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. You see, because Moses, if anyone has tasted success, it's Moses. He's taken on Pharaoh, king of the superpower of the day, and come out on top. He's literally been to the top of the mountain. He's met with God. He's parted the Red Sea. He's made water come out of rocks. Under his leadership, the nation of Israel, it's gone uh, from a bunch of slaves in Egypt to a great nation. And yet, and yet at the giddying heights of his achievement, of all of these achievements, Moses knows pain. He knows disappointment and frustration, death. Despite all he's achieved, instead of seeing the promises that God has made to see them come to be, 
instead of entering the land that God has been promising for generations, the land of rest, the land of God's provision, instead of that, Moses is going to die. He's going to die alone and outside of that land of blessing. And it's out of that experience, out of the highest of highs and the lowest of lows, Moses writes a prayer, the prayer that we've just been reading, for God's people. For when they're feeling the brevity, the vanity of life, then it's to give them hope. Uh, but you might have noticed as we read through, this isn't a personal prayer for Moses' quiet times, right? As that we get to listen in on. Did you notice the plural, the kind of communal language that's scattered throughout it? You have been our resting place. We are brought. All of our days, the years of our life, teach us, satisfy us. See, Moses writes for God's people. And, 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 and at its heart, it, it gives a response and an answer to the brokenness of life, to where satisfaction is found. So let's dig into it together. Because in this first movement of the psalm, our eyes are lifted up to heaven. And immediately we see the immense majesty of the eternal God. Now, I should have said earlier, you may have noticed on your handout, there's a nice little empty spot, which would normally have an outline. Uh, we'll call it technical malfunction. Uh, but really, there's three words that are going to hold us as we walk through the psalm. And I'm going to try and give them to you. I'll try to remember to give them to you as we hit each one. The first one is majestic. The immense majesty of the eternal God. Verse 2. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You see, Moses is he's kind of piling on this imagery, leading God's people in praise. You're the father of the mountains, the creator of the whole world. You made everything, all of its beauty and its complexity, its massive scale, its connection, was you, God. And this prayer, it praises a majestic God for who he is and what he's done. But it also, it also does something for God's people. You see, it does something for us as we join in and pray it along with Moses. It teaches us, it moves us, filling our hearts and our minds with who God is and what he's done. Moses continues, verse 4. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that's just gone like a watch in the night. This God, he, he creates and forms all things. He, he stands outside and over the top of time. He's not bound by its rules. He's majestic. And the thing that Moses wants us to do is he wants us to have perspective. Because compared to this immense and majestic God, the whole of humanity, all of us, we're insignificant. Verse 3, you turn people back to dust, 
saying, return to dust, you mortals. You see, this is the, the language of Genesis, the first book in the Bible. It's the, the language of the curse of sin. And from dust, man was created, and to dust we return. And, and you can see the contrast, right? This eternal and magnificent God that creates everything, sustains it with ease and stands outside of time and humanity formed from dust, returning to dust. Verse 5. Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it's dry and withered. The, the contrast is stark. Isn't it each generation? They rise and fall. They come and go swept away. Humanity, it's insignificant. We're just so ordinary. Which makes it plain weird, doesn't it? That when life gets hard, when the brokenness of life becomes more and more apparent and I feel it, I lean into me. Like, why? I'm just not going to get the job done. It's like carrying an umbrella around in Wellington. <laughs> this is why we need to catch sight of the eternal God, the majestic God, because without this image itched in our minds, the next movement of the psalm, it's bleak. You see, this opening movement of Moses' prayer, it's like a time lapse. You know, the seasons, they kind of come and go, they roll past. This kind of video playing in our heads as we read the words. You know, the harsh winter, blankets of snow all over the ground, lifeless landscape. But then the, the, the rays of light, they start penetrating the clouds. The snow melts away. You know, these little green shoots, they kind of burst out of this barren ground, that vibrant green, and flowers are blooming. There's the warmth of spring and rain. It's replaced by the heat of summer. All this vibrant life, it slowly kind of goes from green to brown. Around we go, around and around and around. Generation rise and fall. But in the background, kind of behind all of this change, immovable, majestic, towering mountains, constant. But, but you see, this psalm, it zooms back even further to the point that the mountains, the world itself, are what are changing. And the constant thing, it's God. It's only once we've seen this, this constant, majestic God, only once we've seen that, only then are we equipped to deal with the brokenness of this life. That's our next word, broken. It's also where the next movement of the psalm goes. Because there's an abrupt shift. I don't know if you felt it as we went through in verse 7, it's hard to miss if you slow down 
and it shows us that life is messy. It's hard. It's broken. But it's not disconnected events just kind of firing off at random and we get hit by some of them. It's personal. It's personal because we've offended God. Verse 7. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. It hits you like a freight train, doesn't it? It, So often our approach to the difficulties of life, it's kind of like, you know, life is just hard, isn't it? And that's just the way it is. It's what we should expect. And so we kind of brace ourselves for it, just this random stuff that happens. But Moses, he knows what's really going on. Okay, he wants us to pull our heads out of the sand, and he wants us to realize that life is hard, all right, but it's hard because we are at fault. See, we've sinned against God, and that means we deserve his anger. Verse 8. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. This is why life is broken. It's because our our sin, it's offensive to God. He knows and he sees everything. You know, imagine kind of flicking up your social media, whatever one your kind of flavor is, and the first post you see, it kind of takes your breath away. Right, a friend is just let loose on their boss. It's unfiltered and it's awful. You're like, hmm, someone's having a bad day. But then you're kind of scrolling through and you keep scrolling. You're like, it's everyone. Everyone and anyone is just letting loose. Just ridiculing, abusing, objectifying. Awful things. You know, you keep scrolling kind of half mortified, but half intrigued at the same time, right? And you see these conversations that you've had or you've heard, stuff that should never be put in the light of day, never be aired publicly. And then your heart stops. It's a post. But it's from you. But isn't the sanitized, kind of airbrushed, nice stuff that you would normally share with the world? This is from the darkest corner of your heart, and you're horrified. Can you imagine if social media was like that? This unfiltered channel straight from the darkest corner of our heart showing who we really are. God, he sees everything. Our iniquities, our secret sins. Our rebellion against him, the God who made us, the one who holds time in his hand that created all things, is immense and majestic. But our sin can't be hidden. It's offensive. And all of those things, above all else, they're a rejection of him. A rejection of how 
he wants us to treat the people he made. And so his anger burns. You know, humans, we were supposed to live forever. Okay, forever in relationship, perfect relationship with God. But his anger, God's anger, burns at our sin. It's both constant and it's final. Verse 9. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Our days may come to 70 years. Or 80 if strength endures. But the best of them are but trouble and sorrow. For they quickly pass and we fly away. Life is filled with trouble and pain, and then we die. It's bleak. But we don't like talking about death, do we? We distract ourselves, or we disguise it, or we defer it. They're cosmetics, so we look younger, like death isn't coming. You may have wondered how I look so good. (laughs) Healthcare, to stretch out our days. I've used a lot of that. You know, 70 is the new 50 I saw on a billboard as I drove past the other day. I notice things like that these days. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's why we can't get satisfaction. Right? It, but this anger, this anger of God, it's not pointless rage. It has a purpose. It, it disciplines. Verse 11. If only we knew the power of your anger. Your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. You see, God's anger, it it brings us, it causes us to number our days. Knowing that the, the end, it's coming. And knowing that means that we can live wisely. Learning how to fear, to respect, to love God. That's wisdom. And with that wisdom, Moses leads us in this final movement of the psalm to take comfort in the grace of God. That's our third word, grace. Because in this movement, Moses turns to use covenant language. It's a language that points us to the promises of God. His promises to have mercy, to love and to save his people. Verse 13. Relent, Lord. How long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. See, Moses leads us to cry out to God, asking him to relent, to turn from his anger and instead to pour out his love, to give us satisfaction. Verse 14, satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. You see, satisfaction, it's, it's not found in reaching the top, in 
untold wealth or stuff or popularity. It's, it's found in the unfailing love of God and in his grace. You see, in joy and gladness, breaking through and replacing all of that time that we've sat under the trouble of God's anger. It's just like when the wind and the rain retreat and the sun comes out and breaks through. Verse 16. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. You see, the defining deeds, the works of God that kind of make him who he is. It's it's him saving a people, and it's what the Bible calls grace. And the people that Moses first wrote this psalm for, they've seen it firsthand. Like, they're a generation that have been slaves in Egypt and have been rescued by God's rescued them, and then he smashed the Egyptian army as it's pursued them. But this isn't the first time in this psalm where Moses has pointed us to God's grace. We skipped over at the beginning, but come back with me to verse 1. Because this, this whole psalm, it starts with grace. Verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place. In all generations. You see, God, He's our dwelling place. He's our place of refuge. Where is it that you seek refuge? You know, where is it that you run to for relief? Relief from the rubbish of this world. That's your dwelling place. You know, do you flick on the TV? kind of for a nice night in? Or is it to get out and kind of taste of all the things that the city has to offer? I mean, it's not that those things are bad, right? They're good gifts from God. But they're rubbish dwelling places. They won't ever offer satisfaction. I don't know. Maybe you reach for something stronger something you wouldn't really want to share. Anything to drown out the disappointments of life, cut through the misery. I mean, will you let Moses show us a better something? You see, in Moses' day, it's a mystery. It's a mystery how exactly God's anger would turn, how the brokenness would be beaten but listen to these words, okay? These are words from John's gospel. Uh, it's, a, it's a gospel, a story, an account of Jesus' life that's written some 1,500 years later. It'll come up on the screen. John 17, verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. That is the disciples alone. I pray for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Do you see? Jesus is praying there for anyone who believes to be in him, for us 
to find our dwelling place in him. And this is exactly where Psalm 90 is pointing us to Jesus. Jesus is where God's anger is turned away from us and onto him. As he dies on the cross, as he takes the full force of God's anger. Why? So that we could take up his life. See, Jesus is where sin is dealt with. It's where, he's where death is defeated. Jesus has come to restore our perfect relationship with God. He's come to be our dwelling place, to bring real joy, to bring satisfaction, true and lasting satisfaction in all of life. In everything we do, That's how Moses finishes the psalm. Verse 17. May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Now, something satisfying, isn't there, in stepping back from a job, work that you've done, and seeing it's finished, it's right there, and it's beautiful. The other day, uh, Theo, our eldest, he brought me his Rubik's Cube, which um, was in several pieces by this point. Uh, now, when I was, I was able to fix it right, I'm like, yes! But you know, you know what, what happened two days later, don't you? Um, and so much of our work is like that, isn't it? Even the work of legends like the, like the Rolling Stones, it doesn't satisfy Right now, as we gather here, they're closing out a concert to 50,000 people in Paris, and they still can't get no satisfaction. But even, but me, even at my best, I, I'm ordinary, right? At best. And yet Moses He's audacious enough to ask the God of this universe to satisfy us, to establish the work of our hands. But you know what? This is exactly what God promises us. If we join in his work, it will last and it will satisfy. That's what the Apostle Paul says when he writes to Christians in the first century. In his letter to the Corinthian church, writing to ordinary Christians, Paul writes these words. Therefore, my dear brothers, always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. That is Jesus. Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. He's talking about work that satisfies. Work that satisfies. There are only two things you can take to heaven. People and godliness. See, this is the work that satisfies to invite others to see God's immense majesty, to deal with the brokenness of this life and to take comfort in the God of grace to find satisfaction, real and lasting satisfaction in Jesus. That's why we're a church that's on mission, right? Jesus says, I have come 
that you can have life and have it to the full. Doesn't that sound like the satisfied life? So I've got to ask, have you made God your dwelling place in Jesus? Because I hope today you've seen what Jesus offers. That relief from the weight of sin, from the heat of God's anger. Freed from 70, you know, maybe 80 years of struggle, 81.66 in New Zealand. To spend eternity filled with satisfaction, with joy and gladness, enjoying God's favor forever. What are you waiting for? All it takes, it's a simple prayer to accept God's gift of grace in Jesus. I'm going to put these words up on the screen, uh, and then I'd love for you to pray them with me. Let's read them together first. This is all it takes to accept the grace, the gift of life, of satisfaction in Jesus. Lord God, Today I've caught sight of your immense majesty. Sorry for my iniquity, even my secret sins which deserve your anger. Please relent. Turn your anger away from me and onto Jesus. Thank you for the lasting satisfaction you give us in Jesus. Will you join me in praying that right now? Lord God, today I have caught sight of your immense majesty. Sorry for my iniquity, even my secret sins, which deserve your anger. Please relent. Turn your anger away from me and on to Jesus. Thank you for the lasting satisfaction you give us in Jesus. Amen.